Welcome to the PA Books Podcast. PA Books is a production of PCN, the Pennsylvania Cable Network. This program features interviews with authors of books on Pennsylvania people, history, sports, business, nature, and politics. We hope you enjoy this podcast. This week on PA Books, Rebecca Yeaman, author of Archaeology at the Site of the Museum of the American Revolution. Rebecca Yeaman, author of Archaeology at the Site of the Museum of the American Revolution. How did you get to be an urban archaeologist? Oh my goodness. <laughs> what a first question that is. Um, I got hired by John Milner Associates, and Dan Roberts was the person who was the head of it then, to head up a big project that had already been excavated in the bowels of New York City. And I wasn't an urban archaeologist, but he gave me this juicy project. There were 850,000 artifacts had already been taken out of the ground. There were 18 people that I had to oversee in a laboratory in the second basement of the World in the World Trade Center. And uh, go to it, he said. <laughs> and so my problem was to get those 850,000 artifacts analyzed to connect them up to a neighborhood which was extremely famous called the Great the Five Points, the most notorious slum in 19th century New York, and figure out what it all meant. And that's how I became an urban archaeologist, by, by doing, which is the way I do things. How long did the project last? <laughs> six years. Six years we did the analysis and we produced a six-volume report and many publications and many lectures. And it was a wonderful project because, of course, um, yellow journalism of the day had condemned this neighborhood as, you know, just the worst place, a hell on earth, and only full of awful people, prostitutes and thieves and pickpockets and all sorts of down-and-out souls. And, of course, what we found are all these artifacts that related to domestic life in an immigrant neighborhood. So what we were producing was a completely different interpretation of this, fame, this place that was very famous. So that's, you know, what urban archaeology should be about, you know, finding out something about the past that's different than the written record of the past. And that was the site of the original World Trade Center? It was, no, it was not the site of the World Trade Center. Oh. That just happened to be where they put our laboratory. Oh. It was right next to where Chinatown is now, right at Foley Square, where all the courthouses are, and immediately next to where Chinatown now is. That's where the five points, these, interse these streets intersected, and there was a big open space there. So they had already knocked down the buildings that were there when they you started They had knocked down the buildings, and they were building another courthouse. So that courthouse is now the Moynihan Courthouse. Why were you doing a dig there? Why not just build the building? The reason we do urban archaeology anywhere, the reason we do it in Philadelphia, and the reason we do it in New York, and the reason, when there is construction that uh, seems to be in a place that might have important remains from the past that will be disturbed by the pending construction, they're required from the National Historic Preservation Act to hire an archaeologist to go through a three-stage process to determine whether there's what used to be there, what might still be there, 
and if it's significant, to excavate it before the construction happens, so before those remains of the past that are significant get destroyed. So that's what happened in New York on the site of the courthouse, and that's what happened here on the site of the Museum of the American Revolution. B before you did that project in New York, were you another type of archaeologist? Yes. <laughs> <laughs> I was sort of a landscape archaeologist. I had written a book about landscape archaeology, or, or edited a book, co-edited a book about landscape archaeology. I had worked at a site in New Jersey where we were looking at terraces and the remains of gardens and things like that. And I had also done this thing we called contract archaeology, which is to dig holes in places where there's going to be construction. And sometimes you dig lots of holes and you don't find anything. And sometimes you do research and you determined that there used to be something there, or there was something prehistoric there, or, you know, and you dig a lot of empty holes. So these projects in urban places, which produce lots of artifacts, are infinitely more satisfying because there's much more to think about. And there's, it's, it's uh, challenging in the field, too, because you have to figure out the complexity of all of these demolition episodes and construction episodes and whatever's left from the past beneath it all, beneath all that disturbance. How long has that law been a law that you had to do archaeology? 1966 in this country. And you know, many countries have the same law. It's that you, we want to be sure that that record of the past, which is irreplaceable, I mean, gets investigated before it's completely gone. So we, of course, are destroying it as we investigate it, but we're recording everything in minute detail and hopefully interpreting it in a way that's meaningful and contributes to what we can know about the past. When did the idea of historic preservation become a thing? Gosh, I don't know, early 20th century? Was it in the 18th century, I think? 19th century, 19th century, I guess. 19th century became sort of this, I guess, I'm certainly not an expert on that, but there has been an awareness for a long time. Archaeology was not automatically included. So when they, for instance, had the um, National Register of Historic Places, most of those early nominations, which date to the 50s and the early 60s, did not include the buried record. They were only interested in the above-ground resources, the standing structures, you know, those famous historic houses. So people could go dig up the ground all around those historic houses because people weren't thinking about what we might learn from that part of the record until, you know, the 20th century, basically, I think. <laughs> How did you get involved in this project with the American uh, Revolution Museum? Well, when I was still at John Milner Associates, um, we, let's see, originally the museum was going to stand on a site at Valley Forge. I don't know if you know that tale. It's sort of a long controversy. So originally the museum was, was designed for at Valley Forge, and John Milner Associates was hired to determine the sensitivity of that site. And so I was involved, you know, just in that project as one of my many projects. And we determined that there was no sensitivity on that site, and they could go ahead and build their museum. But the Park Service was not interested in having another museum at Valley Forge. And so eventually what they worked out was the Park Service traded the land where the vis visitor center was standing on 3rd Street at the corner of Chestnut for the land at Valley Forge. So the Park Service got the Valley Forge stuff back and um, the Museum of the American Revolution went on this other site. So the people I worked with uh, on the Valley Forge project remembered me 
and when it was time to do the archaeological sensitivity study on the new site at Third and Chestnut, they hired us, which was really terrific. So it was a great opportunity. So what did they tear down to build the Museum of the American Revolution? The visitor center that had been built on that site in, for the bicentennial. Remember the one with the tower and the bell, the bell tower building? It was quite a task to get rid of that building. <laughs> was, was that thought to be a good visitor center or what was the... Was I think people complained building? about it a lot. They didn't like its architecture. I didn't mind it myself, but I think also the building had a lot of problems, leaks, and you know, those kinds of problems, physical plant problems. So it wasn't an ideal place. However, when they decided to tear it down, it was being used as an archaeological laboratory to analyze the materials that had been recovered when they built the Constitution Center through this same process of having to do this work in compliance with the National Historic Preservation Act. But when they built the visitor center in the 70s, they didn't do an archaeological No, study? because the law wasn't strong enough yet. There weren't guidelines in place that, you know, were insistent that this process take place. So, and the other good thing about the visitor center was that there was no basement be below it. So it hadn't, you know, its construction had not destroyed what might have been there before. However, what had been there before were a lot of very tall buildings with very deep basements. So plenty of destruction had been done to the original landscape and to the 18th century landscape by those buildings, but not by the construction of the visitor center. So if someone buys this book, what do they get? The whole history of Philadelphia, <laughs> as I say in my subtitle, right? <laughs> what we thought we were going to get on that site were, uh, well, when you start an urban project, you don't know if you're going to get anything because there's been so much building and rebuilding and destruction. And as you know from living in the city, you know, when you walk down the street, things change. I mean, sometimes a store disappears and I've forgotten within a week that it was ever there because something new is there. So there's this constant dynamic process going on. So when I approach an urban site, even though I've done the background research, and in this case we knew there were 23 historic lots on this, you know, quarter of a block, um, I'm never quite sure that really there's going to be anything left in the ground because it just looks so unlikely, especially, you know, there was the visitor center standing there and then the visitor center is taken down. and I just, you know, don't know. However, ideally, and the way I budgeted the project, because you have to budget it before you start, before the client know, you know, so the client's going to know how much they're going to pay for it, the potential was that there would be 23 historic backyards that might have privies in them, that might have artifacts that related to the people who had business, small businesses on these lots and lived upstairs. So it would have been a rich record of, you know, all of those artisans and widows and, you know, shopkeepers who were living on these 23 historic lots. That isn't what we found. And, of course, you know, if you find something, it's never quite what you think it's going to be. You just hope it's something. On this site, we really found something because we, sat, we had to respond to the record that revealed itself, which wasn't, you know, the artisan shops from, that had been on the 23 lots. It was really some, some things from the early 18th century, some things from the 
middle 18th century, some things from the early 19th century, some things from the middle 19th century, and even some things from the early 20th century. So it's a whole story of, you know, the growth of Philadelphia uh, in the a quarter of a block. Could you go to pretty much any block in Old Town Philadelphia and start that and find the same type of thing? I don't know. I mean, some of the blocks maybe, maybe didn't have the big commercial buildings with deep double basements that destroyed all of those backyards. So maybe some of the blocks really do have a greater record of the 18th century occupation. Maybe some of the blocks don't have, you know, a button factory that dates to the early 20th century. Maybe some lots don't have a famous building that was, you know, maybe the first skyscraper in the United States. So you can't know. I can't guess that any block in Old City is going to tell the same story. And with urban archaeology, the story comes out of the finds. You know, you know, you don't presuppose what the story is going to be. You have to just look at what you find and see what that story is. So I was pretty thrilled to be able to tell this long story from what we found on this site and this different story than I would have made up beforehand. Now, our studio where we're recording this is near Rittenhouse Square, and there are buildings going up all the time in yeah, Philadelphia yeah. where they have to dig big holes in the ground. How do they know? Do they have to, every time they do that, anywhere in the city, do the you know? It's lucky that they don't, story? because that would really be awful. It would be, produce many more artifacts than we could possibly <laughs> interpret. No. Um, they only have to do it if it's federally funded or mm -hmm. federally permitted. So the law is for, or it's on federal land. So, you know, most of that construction is done with private funds. And in Philadelphia, we don't have a law that says that private developers need to do archaeology. Maybe we should have such a law, and they do have a law like that in New York, but we don't have it here in Philadelphia. So that means that all that construction does not have to pay us to do archaeology before it happens. So what was your involvement in the project? In the Museum of the American Revolution, yeah. I'm the principal investigator, which means, you know, I made the decisions. And I, uh, I certainly was in the field once a week, but I was not, I did not oversee the act of excavation of the site. It's a lucky thing, because after all, I'm an old lady, and, you know, it would be hard. And, in fact, it was very funny. I would be on the site at least once a week, because the contractor who was working side, we were working side by side with the guys who were going to do the construction. They were, they were shoring the site. And so they were, you know, digging the basement, and we were watching to see if they were hitting any of these things that we need to investigate while they were doing that. But I think the guys who worked with the contractor were very nervous when I would get onto the site. And I would see them, you know, somebody would extend his hand to help me, and then he would pull it right back. And no, oh, no, that's not appropriate. She is the principal archaeologist here. That would be, you know, <laughs> not the thing to do. Anyway, Tim Mansell, who was terrific, was my field director, and he did a terrific job. And if I wasn't on the site and he had a question, he would call me and we would discuss it and I would make the decision. That's what the principal investigator does. And then I would, I, and I sort of, I had written the proposal and, you know, it was, you know, I had designed what we were going to do, but he took care of doing it, which was terrific. And then once we had everything out of the ground, there are a lot of people who analyze the different categories of artifacts. So somebody analyzes the glass, somebody analyzes the ceramics. I don't do that either. Somebody analyzes the food bones, and then I have to integrate it all. Somebody does documentary, primary documentary research. I do a lot of secondary historical reading, and then we weave it together. And I decide 
you know, what it means and what direction we should take and what to emphasize. And that's what the principal investigator does. So when you find a broken pipe or a, so a piece of pottery, you, you take it out and then start researching it? No. I mean, you, we find everything. We don't start researching in the middle of the excavation. Though in one case, when we had this phenomenal find with the picture of the boat and the word success to the trifena, um, then we, you know, we're very excited and we started researching as, as soon as we could because it seemed to have particular significance. But normally, you don't start researching until you have it all so you know what's really important and how it fits together and if we can connect it to people. Because I am of the opinion that we shouldn't waste our time with stuff that doesn't connect to people. You can get stuff in antique stores and it's going to be in better shape than the stuff we get out of the bottom of these privy shafts, you know, the stuff that's buried in night soil, human waste, not so pleasant. And usually not whole, even though we can paste it back together, but there are all sorts of cracks. So the stuff we're interested in is the stuff that comes from an intact deposit that we can associate with the people who probably live there. Who's, you know, who threw out these things. So it's their garbage, and from their garbage, we're able to say something about them. I want to ask you about night soil, but you mentioned the Trifena. Trifena? Yeah. What is that? That was a ship. That's um, sort of the most significant artifact. I mean, I hate to, you know, give preference to one mm -hmm. artifact, but because we were on a site that was the Museum of the American Revolution, to get an artifact that relates to the revolution was pretty thrilling, and especially one that relates to the run-up to the revolution. So the Trifena was, a, so this bowl, it's a, it turns out to be a punch bowl, and it's a, it has a picture of a two-masted ship in it, and it has the word success to the Trifena written on it. So Trifena was the name of the boat. We knew that, you know, there are bowls that, with other names on them, so you success to the whatever, and ours was the Trifena. So we could look in the newspapers of the period and find out what the Trifena was. So the Trifena was a ship that sailed between Liverpool and Philadelphia, and we know the name of the captain was John Smith, and he would deliver things to Philadelphia, basically from Liverpool, mainly textiles. So that was cool. You could read these ads, and you know he's delivering to so and so shop on Market Street, and he's delivering to so and so shop on, on you know that was wonderful. But then in 1766, he carried a message from the merchants of Philadelphia to the merchants and manufacturers of London, asking them to stop the Stamp Act. Well, the Stamp Act, of course, is one of the bases for the revolution. I mean, you know, one of the many, many taxes that was being objected to. So to find that artifact that related directly to the mission of the museum, uh, which is on the site where the artifact came from, very significant. And the, uh, I hope you've been to the museum, and it's in the third room on the right, <laughs> lower right. Un unfortunately, it doesn't say on the tag that it came from the site, but I understand that all of the guides and anybody who, and you can also buy a replica of the bowl in the shop, and you can buy a, um, you know, a magnet for your refrigerator that has a picture of the Trifena. Now, this is a first for me. I've never had an excavation that had anything, you know, replicated for the shop, and I've never had an artifact that was... And it, usually when we do these urban, artif urban uh, excavations, we get thousands of artifacts, thousands. And 
there's no place to display them. You know, we write a technical report, and it gets buried in Harrisburg along with the artifacts. And yes, someday some graduate student may come along and pull out some of those artifacts and look at our report. But basically, very few people read our technical reports. In this case, the museum has not only taken the Trifana Bowl, which is in the third room on the, on the lower right, but has taken many of the other artifacts also. And they're curating them beautifully, and they're going to use them interpretively, and they're using them in the education program. How gratifying. You know, we didn't just take this stuff out to be buried in, the, in Harrisburg. So we're very, you know, it's just, I'm very pleased. I, it warms my heart that we when, should be. When you start a dig, do you, do you go the, do you dig shafts down or do you start peeling layers back over the whole site? Well, it depends on the situation. In this situation, we were not in charge of how the ground was being opened up because, as I said, we were working side by side with D'Angelo, who was a contractor. Um, however, we did know that this site had been bisected by an alley that had been there since they first developed the historic lots that faced Chestnut Street. So the alley was parallel to Chestnut Street. And we thought, and the alley was there before um, the Park Service built the visitor center when, when they built the visitor center. I think that's right. I think that's right. Yeah. So we knew that the, we, we could find, maybe we could find the location of the alley, which would show us where we were in space. So that would be the best way to start to open up this site. I mean, you can't talk about opening up a whole urban site. You have to open up pieces of it and you have to sample. And, you know, it's just too much. You can't just strip the first layer off and take a look and then strip the next layer off. You have to go with a plan. And so that's what we did. And so we start, We found this alley, and um, that was very helpful. And then we found various things on either side of the alley. And the book is, is chronological from past to Correct. present, but you, you found them the opposite way. <laughs> <laughs> oh, would you have preferred I had it the other way? <laughs> yeah. That's correct, yeah. Well, I do have to ask you about night soil. Uh-huh. Why night. is it significant? You haven't visited an archaeological site? <laughs> no. <laughs> night soil is significant because what we want are, I mean, it's, at, it, it's human waste that is in the bottom of these privies. Now, a privy is the hole underneath the outhouse. And on urban places, often the old backyards have been destroyed by subsequent construction. So all that's left are the bottoms of these shafts that were the holes under the privies. And in the shaft, needless to say, is what was supposed to be in the shaft, which is night soil. Night soil, um, a nice thick deposit of night soil, is sticky and dense, and it cradles the artifacts. And it's full of, you know, can be full of garbage that's been thrown down into the privy because there was no garbage disposal, so there was no other place to put the stuff. So night soil is significant for us because it gives us the artifacts that were being thrown out by the people who's created the night soil, probably, which is, makes it particularly wonderful because then that's the kind, you know, that's what I was telling you. I don't like artifacts that are just artifacts. We like artifacts that are associated with people. How would you connect an artifact to a person? By dating it. The basic thing we do during the artifact analysis is to describe its style, of course, and all that, but to 
it, there are dates during which certain things were manufactured. So certain ceramics are manufactured between 1830 and 1860, or things are manufactured between 1695 and 1776. So you, you date all the artifacts from each layer, and then you have census records and directories and historic maps. You figure out who was living in that place, hopefully with the help of all of these primary records, uh, when that night soil was deposited, and that's how you know who they are. How did you know when you were at the bottom? When there was uh, well, else you get any... sterile, sterile subsoil. How, I mean, how far back did that go? How far back did... How early in history was the oldest thing you found? Oh, in this particular instance? Mm -hmm. Basically the turn of the 18th century, the last, last of, the, of the 1600s. And that's when these lots were developed. You know, I mean, you know, William Penn is 1680, and we're right there. And, you know, these lots were first developed, were given to the people who first owned them by William Penn. So we're right there at the beginning. And that's why I can claim that this is a tale of, you know, the history of Philadelphia, because we're, go we're right there at the beginning. Now, we imagine that this particular block was developed that early because it was right by Dock Creek, which is this inlet from the river, from, from the Delaware. And of course, it's near the Delaware. It's a couple blocks from the Delaware. So Dock Creek was very good for tanning, for tanning leather. And many cities were very dependent on the tanning industry in their early developmental stages. And probably this block was first developed by tanners. And we know that there were tanners living on the block. And you found cattle horns in Yeah. There? The earliest, basically the earliest feature, the earliest one of these privies, uh, was on the top had all this debris from the tanning industry, which are cattle horns and shreds of leather and, you know, all of this garbage that is was created by the industry, which was taking place right there on Dock Creek, which is right down the hill from the site. And was it Benjamin Franklin who got the tanners out of the middle of town? He complained a lot. <laughs> he complained a lot. He didn't succeed, but yes, he, he was the one who, so, you know, the citizens were beginning to complain. Tanning is really nasty creates terrible smells, you know, so it's a nasty industry to have in your neighborhood and to have to live with. And so the citizens were complaining. Benjamin Franklin had ideas about how to channel the creek and to, to clean up the neighborhood. He didn't really succeed, but eventually it did happen. Now, the subtitle for your book is A Tale of Two Taverns and the Growth of Philadelphia. So right. what, what are the two taverns? So you got the growth of Philadelphia. No, you, you take, <laughs> take that. Okay, the two taverns. So one tavern was on Chestnut Street, except it wasn't really on the site. What we found was a privy that was on the boundary between two historic lots that had houses on them that faced Chestnut Street in the 1730s and 40s. We know who owned those properties when they were transferred from one ownership to another ownership. And then when we found all the artifacts, we found lots of artifacts that, you know, how people set their tables and all that stuff, what they drink in. And then we found a whole bunch of artifacts from this privy that were obviously from a tavern. Now, what were they doing there? I mean, we searched the documentary record to see the record of a tavern being located on that site, and it wasn't there. But it turns out that we had a date for the bunch of artifacts that looked like tavern artifacts, which are characteristic. Anyway, there are all these posset pots and uh, tankards and things in smoking pipes, kinds of things that get used in taverns. So we found out 
that across the street was the Three Ton Tavern, which was redecorating at the time that all of this stuff was thrown out. So how fantastic. So they were redecorating. In fact, they were changing ownership. So we figure that the privy needed to be filled up, and the people across the street needed a place to throw out all their old stuff so they could get new stuff. And so they threw it in the feature across the street. And that's why we have this wonderful record of tavern. Now we know who the tavern keeper was. We know that James Orinoco Dexter was working for the tavern keeper when he was still enslaved. We know that the tavern keeper uh, contributed to the manumission of, which is the freeing of this enslaved person. Fantastic. I mean, you know, what a story. And not only that, James Orinoco Dexter, once he was freed, went on to be a, very, a leader in the African-American community in Philadelphia, and his house site was excavated when they were building the Constitution Center. So we can, you know, we can tell a more complete story about what happened to this, this man in this period in Philadelphia. I want to read uh, two things you have here. The block where the Museum of the American Revolution now stands had the most taverns of any colonial, uh, any block in colonial period Philadelphia. You also say everyone drank. The average <laughs> annual per capita consumption of hard liquor was 3.7 gallons. Right, Sounds right. like a lot. But you also say scholars claim that men of all different ranks drank together in early taverns. Right. So rich and poor. Exactly. Federalist elbow. and anti-federalist. Elbow to elbow. So you can imagine that, you know, there was a lot of arguing going on. And yeah, so it's so... It's fun to have the actual material record of the things they were drinking out of because, you know, you can really conjure up an image of these lively political arguments going on. And here we are on the side of the Museum of the American Revolution, needless to say, in the 1760s, which is, you know, so, so cool, so cool. So it's, it's a tangible record that goes along with the historian's discussion of how much drinking was going on and how people were, you know, of all different classes sitting next to each other doing the drinking and doing the arguing. What did they drink out of? these wonderful posset pots. And they drank out of tankards, which were regulation sizes. That's one of the things that clues us to the fact that we're dealing with a tavern assemblage because they come in different sizes. And, um, you know, they're like beer, beer you know, what a beer stein is, so the tankard kind of thing. So, and, and the glasses, we didn't have very many glasses. Not on that side anyway, not from that. Not from that so, assemblage. Can you tell from this what everyday life was like? I mean, what, what people ate and what they wore and how they spent their time? That's what you can tell. That's what, exactly what we can tell. How they spent their time or thoughts in their head, we can't really tell what the thoughts in their head were. But we can tell what choices they made in terms of their possessions, you know, what their taste was, how much money they had to spend compared to what the guy next door had to spend, that kind of thing. Uh, we can tell, you know, how um, how hard their lives were, how you know how the kitchen worked, how the bones were butchered, and that you know all of those kinds of things that aren't necessarily in lofty history books that talk about political arguments among you know powerful white men. So what we're talking about are unpowerful people like us, like me, you know, a regular old person, and how regular old people we're living in these times and it's 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 fleshing out the complexity of life in different places and different periods that's what we're doing with this archaeology now would you then um, 
you could find a, a building or a wall or something and then go back and look at the records? Were good records kept back then about who owned what and what spaces were used for? Yeah, there are deeds. They're, sure, there, there are deeds and there are maps that, that are labeled, you know, with what the artisans. For instance, in the book, there is a map that reconstructs the block in uh, what the turn, I think in about 1800, and that's done from tax records. And, you know, it's, it's laborious to put all of that together, but it can be done. And, of course, that's essential to making our analysis meaningful. If we just, you know, collected these artifacts and said, isn't this cool, we found these beautiful plots and these beautiful, it's, you know, we don't need to do that. That's not important. What's important is that weaving together of the, with those records. Any connection to anybody famous on that block, or was it more gratifying to find people who were not famous? Mm, more gratifying to people who were not famous. However, Dr. Jane, who built his building, the Jane Building, in the middle of the block in 1850, uh, was a millionaire. So, I mean, and he was a patent medicine manufacturer, and he was probably famous in his day. But you probably had never heard of him until you read my book. So <laughs> that's, you know, you have to realize it's not just everyday people, everyday poor people who are not recognized. There can be people who were recognized in their day as being important people. And so Dr. David Jane was obviously a, you know, a well-known citizen in Philadelphia who had built the highest building that had been built and uh, was you know, revealing himself as a rich, successful patent medicine manufacturer. How high was the building? Eight stories, plus a turret which burned off in terrible fire in 18, whatever, whenever the fire was. A yeah. skyscraper in its day. It was, yes, it was a skyscraper. And, you know, that building was still, there are buildings across the street that were built in the same time that are still standing. One of them burned just this last year, which is too bad. But on that block between 2nd and 3rd, on, on the north side of Chestnut Street, there are buildings that were built in the middle of the 19th century. His building was the first to be that tall. And um, Charlie Peterson, who was working for the Park Service in the 1950s when the Park Service was first developing Independence National Historical Park, thought that his building should have been preserved because he thought it was a proto-skyscraper, and this is a big significant thing. And he, you know, he was, uh, he was very interested in historic preservation, and he argued and he lost the fight and the Park Service took down the building. So when we found these huge granite foundations, I was thrilled because I thought Charlie would be smiling down. I mean, that building, they took it down, but you know, they couldn't take it all down. <laughs> Some of it survived because it was so hefty and so well built and these pieces of granite were so beautiful and Jane had gone to so much trouble to bring in this fancy granite from Massachusetts to build his building. Uh, so it was, it's wonderful that some of it was left. The contractor didn't think it was so wonderful. It was very hard to remove the granite. It was, you know, as, it, as hard as it had been to get the bell tower down from the visitor center, it was equally hard to get these huge slabs, you know, cut, beautifully cut pieces of granite out of the way, which they had to be, they had to be out of the way. Now, what do you do with those? I mean, they're, they're not, you don't preserve them someplace, well, do you? Well, the museum, which was so sensitive and so appreciative of our archaeological efforts, wanted to preserve one of those pieces and put it in front of the museum. 
and probably have the cannons on top of it. There are cannons that aren't on top of it. But they, there was no place to store it during construction. So it's not like having a shard of pottery that you can like store. It's not like having shards of pottery in John Milner Associates' laboratory. You know, I mean, it was stuck. You know, it was on the site, and it either had to be put somewhere or it had to go. And so it, I understand that some of it is in West Philadelphia in various parks. But I haven't gone out to explore these parks, but I'm thrilled. I mean, again, you know, it's better than just dumping it. You mentioned in your book um, Humphreys Tavern oh, and yeah. licensed taverns versus unlicensed taverns. Absolutely. What's taverns were, had to be licensed in the 18th century. Um, Benjamin and Mary Humphreys moved to the block in 1776, so they bought a little plot of land. It was one of the lots that had one of these intact circular privies on it. And, it, you know, it was a very juicy privy. It was full of lots of stuff. So we got the stuff. We started analyzing it. And Alex, a uh, person who was analyzing the glass, said to me, well, this is a tavern. I said, Alex, this is not a tavern. We know Mary Humphreys was a cutler. He wasn't a tavern keeper. Alex said, listen, I got 100 bottles, and this was a tavern site. So we started to look for a tavern license, and we couldn't find a tavern license. I, you know, I went to the Historical Society, and somebody else went to the archives, and we searched, 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 and could not find a tavern license. But Todd Benedict, who was doing some of the research, found this arrest of Mary Humphreys for running an unlicensed tavern. So that's a big deal. I mean, she wasn't supposed to be running it, and she was tried, and she had to do hard labor, and she had to pay a hu huge fine, and, you know, it was serious disgrace. She was dragged through the streets, not dragged, but, you know, taken through the streets in disgrace. So it was a big deal. Now, that is the feature that had the trifena bowl in the very bottom of it. So that feature has produced all sorts of information. It produced the trifena bowl. It produced a beautiful assemblage of her household goods, including beautiful white dishes, because she was a lovely Quaker lady. So she was a lovely Quaker lady who was running an unlicensed tavern on a back alley in, uh, the revol during the Revolution, you know, right at the Revolutionary Times. Incredible. incredible. Did I that mean, mean sordid stuff was going on there? Could have been a little sordid stuff, yeah. Yeah, <laughs> definitely could have been prostitutes hanging about. No, we don't know, but there were 23 chamber pots in that assemblage. It was a hell of a lot of chamber pots, so they must have been doing something with chamber pots. And, uh, you know, it was a very interesting assemblage of artifacts. Also lots of tankards and lots of, and the food remains, you know, suggest that meals were being served there. And, you know, it was, it was an operation, and uh, she got caught doing it. Have you been able to find any diaries or letters from the people who lived on that? No. Lot? No. So that's, that's very rare to be able to find letters, to find the actual words. So we have to make it up. <laughs> so we make it, we it, weave it all together and make, and I write these little narratives, which I've been doing since I did that big project in New York, the Five Points Project, where I sort of take everything and then imagine what, the people who owned the stuff might be sane. So I did write a little narrative about Mary Humphreys, who was, you know, disturbed what what was happening in her tavern. Now, I don't really know that that's what Mary Humphreys would have been thinking or doing, but it's a way to kind of um, make you recognize the reality of this. I mean, the reality of people in the past living their lives. And that's what we want to be able to do, to connect to the reality. I have trouble believing in the past. I always say this. But 
I have, I have flashes of belief when I'm in the field and when I'm dealing with the real things. But constructing, uh, you know, and when I write these narratives, it helps me really sense that these are real living people that were living back then. I don't know how you are with the, whether you believe in the real people from the past living in a different way than when we live. But, you know, it's, it's not easy to make that leap. And um, it's, it's great to not just be inventing it, but to make the leap connected with the actual material remains. I have to read you this, uh, ask you, getting back to night soil again. You say, a big glob of night soil may at first look like it contains nothing, but after it's sprayed with water, the artifacts appear. So you, you spray a glob of, blob of glup and get an artifact, and then where does it go? What, what's the process from that point on when you find that little thing? So it goes in bags. So the things come from specific locations. That's the very important thing, this concept of provenience. So you have to have the artifacts that are found in a layer of soil that all seems to be deposited at the same time. So you have to excavate layer by layer. So we get a glob of night soil from a layer within the privy. We put it into the, the uh, screen. And uh, let me tell you, you know, my writing doesn't do it justice. I mean, it really is disgusting. It looks as if it has nothing in it. You spray the hose on it, and suddenly, you know, there are 500 pieces of window glass, or there are wonderful shirts with words on them, or, you know, I mean, it's fantastic. So then you put all the ceramic shirts into one bag, and all the glass shirts into another bag, and all the metal shirts into a different bag, and they all have a number on them that corresponds to the exact place the provenience on the site where they came from, so that those artifacts will always be associated with that specific place. If you didn't do that, it would be meaningless because you just have stuff like you can pick up when you're on the beach, you know. So you have to have it specifically. So then those artifacts with that number on the bag go back to the laboratory and they get washed and then they get the number written on them. So forever, the artifacts are associated with the place that they were taken out of the ground. So then, of course, the, like ceramics, we glue them together. I mean, if we see that some of them seem to fit together, we fit them together. So we have teacups and plates, and you know, you want to have better than just shirt, just counting up broken pieces of pottery. You want to see, did somebody have two tea sets? Did they have a fancy tea set and a not fancy tea set? Did they have Many, you know, did they have serving dishes, or did they just have plates, or did, you know, because all that has implications for how they were presenting themselves in society, what they cared about, what they were spent, you know, what they could spend money on, and why they would spend, you know, it, it all relates. So it's, it's um, very time-consuming, very laborious, and that's what we do. And some people love it, and some people absolutely hate it. You know, getting it out of the ground is laborious also, you know, because you're digging and digging and digging and then putting it into the screen and putting the... So it's, it's a long process to come up with these stories that, you know, hopefully you can come up with stories that you can write a book about. How often do you have a eureka moment? Well, we archaeologists are happy with 
<laughs> stuff that you would probably not be happy with. <laughs> we have eureka moments all the time. Oh. Of course, because on a site like this, on an urban site like this, that's not true when you're digging shovel tests along a sewer line, let me tell you. That, that, that's really when you have one dry hole after another. That is not so eureka-ish. But on an urban site, be, you know, there's just all sorts of stuff. Walls where you don't expect them, and it's just fantastic. And everything has potential meaning, even if it, it turns out not to be meaningful. But while you're digging, you say, ah, oh, this might be, you know, the whole process, this might be something. We were digging on the um, visitor center, the middle of Independence Mall site, and we had a site that had loads of wine bottles. Well, this might be a tavern. In that case, it turned out not to be a tavern. But there's, there's always this might, you know, you're, you're make, if you overheard the archaeologist, you would be, you would think we were crazy because, you know, one half hour we're saying it might be this, and then in another half hour we're saying it might be this other thing. But your mind is always going to what it might be. That's how you do a good archaeology. You have to constantly be hypothesizing so that you know where to dig your next hole to figure out whether it is or it isn't what it is you, you imagined it might be. So it's, 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 a, it's that process. That's what's wonderful about archaeology, that it's physical and intellectual. So it's just, you know, it's this, this intense process. And what kind of job is that? You said along pipelines where you dig and don't find anything? Right. Kind of well, if they're using federal money <laughs> to build a pipeline, which often they are, you ha and it might be going through, you know, meadows that might have been uh, occupied in, in prehistoric times or, or, or it might be going through um, places that show up on historic maps that are no longer communities, but there might be communities. Mm -hmm. So then you have to dig holes. If it's very sensitive, you dig holes every 25 feet or every 50 feet or every 100 feet, and you dig little one-by-ones with a shovel and screen the dirt, and if you find things in them, then you have to investigate whether or not you have the site of a historic house or the site of a possible, you know, Indian uh, campsite or, you know, that kind of thing. So that's, that's what those, those, those projects are about. I want to jump ahead a little bit from colonial times to 1829. You say in this block with Carter's Alley, the Pennsylvania Inquirer, later the Philadelphia Inquirer, was published by Jesper Harding at 36 Carter's Alley. Yes, how about that? And then William Harding, who was his son, and he published it during the Civil War and really made it into a great big, huge huge, you know, operate, uh, the inquirer that we know today. I mean, imagine, and we had a privy that had pieces of print type in it that probably were from the inquirer office before it changed its location. And when we found this, you know, Jerry Lindfest owned the inquirer and, and was the president of the Museum of the American Revolution. So it was so thrilling to think. So not only do we have the punch bowl that deals with the revolution, but we have the printer's type that deals with the, the history of the Philadelphia Inquirer. So that was pretty cool. And, but there were a lot of printers on the block. One of the earliest, some of the earliest artifacts we found were print type. Uh, lead? What, what? Yeah, it's a little these pieces of lead that have letters on them. Yeah. And then you also say the Saturday Evening Post, for people old enough to remember the Saturday Evening Post, was published out of the Inquirer's old quarters at 36 yeah. Carter's Alley until it moved to South 3rd Street. Uh, right, right. And then it moved to the Curtis Building eventually, yeah. So the, um, the, the skyscraper, um, the patent medicine 
Yeah. Man, Jane, Jenny? Jane. Jane's? Jane. Was, David Jane. Was that like snake oil or was it legitimate? What kind of, what did patent medicine mean? <laughs> I think it was snake oil, but probably some people don't. I mean, I think there are things that are sold now that are pretty <laughs> snake oilish. I, uh, I'm sure some people thought that they were curing themselves with his products, uh, but who knows? They usually on their labels, you know, they had all sorts of claims. Every disease imaginable could be cured with, with one, one uh, remedy. God only knows. And maybe they had a little alcohol in them, and so, you know, it was good to have around <laughs> if then, you needed extra. And then it was a set of a button factory? How about that? So that was wonderful, because we found thousands of debris from the button factory. So what was wonderful about that was that we could give it away. So the Museum of the America, if you go to the museum and you come to the ticket counter, there are shells that have these notches cut out of them that are debris from the button factory. Everybody has it on their desks. During the excavation, the museum was so thrilled that they polished up pieces of button debris and put it in fancy cases and gave it to their dignitaries. Then, you know, it was that, that phenomenon of having something real from the site that relates to something that was going on in the site. So, yeah, Mary Humphreys ran her illegal tavern in 1776, and I think his name was George Lippincott, Lippincott ran his button factory in the same place in 1913 up to the Second World War. Isn't that amazing? I mean, the this is, this is the, the, the history of the city. I mean, you go from, you know, the tanners and the tavern keepers to the uh, patent, man patent medicine manufacturer to the button factory. And, you know, just oodles and oodles of debris from the button factory, which wonderful Tim Mansell, who was the field director, and fortunately is an industrial archaeologist, so he really knew how to look at the machinery that buttons were made with and to think about its implications where it fit into the context of button manufacture in that period. Do you have your own personal collection of stuff you've Absolutely located? not. Many archaeologists collect. I do not. I do not. I have, you know, lovely things that are precious to me, and some of them are old, but I don't collect stuff off sites or even in antique. I don't go, you know, on Saturdays to antique stores and find goodies that relate to something I find in archaeology. No, archaeology is archaeology, and my life is my life. <laughs> on the site, when did you know when you were done? Uh, <laughs> when did we know we were done? I get. When did we know we were done? I. That's a funny question. I don't know when we knew we were At done. At some point, you have to say, "Okay, we, we're done. Hand it over. Well, start building." We because we were working with the contractor who was excavating the basement, um, and we looked at everything that looked potentially significant to us. You know, that would relate to something historically, and when there were no more of those significant things to look at. Uh, the contractor was thrilled to have us go. <laughs> but it really had worked out very well. I mean, it had, and, you know, it was wonderful that the guy who, you know, didn't like us so much when we first arrived on the site asked for a copy of the report in the end because he really was thrilled to know that what didn't make any sense to him at all and seemed to be getting in his way when he saw how we put things together, the stories we could build from these things, 
I, he wanted a piece of it. And so I understand that in D'Angelo's lobby or wherever people go uh, is a copy of our report, which is great. When did they start turning the, that part of the city into a Independence National Historical Park? Fifties, the mid-fifties, and that's when Charlie Peterson was arguing so vehemently to keep the Jane Building standing, so it was in the mid-fifties. The Park Service has photographs of all the buildings they took down. You know, I mean, they all, you know that the Independence Mall was, was complete, complex, urban landscape. It was all buildings. So all, all those buildings were taken down to create those three open blocks. And at the same time, the buildings were taken down uh, in, you know, where the, where the museum is. When, yeah. when it was all done and they started digging and pouring and building the building there, did, did you get kind of wistful and saying, whoa, no, you know, there's this, all this stuff happened here. How can you bury it? Uh, no, because we had taken it all. I mean, that's the point, right? We had it. And, and to have what I don't feel wistful, sometimes I feel wistful of other places. But here, I mean, they're really using the stuff, and they're telling the stories. And they invited me. They didn't invite me to write the book. Temple invited me to write the book. But this book will be in the shop of the museum on the site of where we found the stuff. Well, how amazing. You know, how absolutely amazing. And I just hope, I haven't seen the book, you know, as a bound thing. It really doesn't exist yet. I think it will be, exist on December 3rd. I hope it's little. I wanted it to be lots and lots of pictures so somebody who didn't want to read the text could just, you know, see the story being told from the pictures. I wrote another one about a site I've been digging in New Jersey for 25 years. And, you know, I just want... You know, it's so much fun for us, the archaeologists. I want other people to have this experience of being able to, to feel the past, to tangibly, you know, feel this record, this real record of the, of the past, and so they can appreciate, you know, what came before. I guess that's it. And so, it, it, you know, I don't have to be wistful about this one. Other ones I do. You know, they're, they're wonderfully interesting sites that, I don't have a book about. I mean, I've published in, in technical journals that, you know, only the technical this other people read. How'd the museum turn out? The museum? Yeah. Oh, I think the museum is amazing. I love it. I mean, I love the way um, every time I go, I've been many times because every time an out-of-town out guest comes, I go again. So I was just, just there last week. And I always see things I haven't seen before. And the Oneida, did you look at the, you know, the Oneida argument about which side they should be on? Do you remember that mm -hmm. part of the exhibit? Well, I come from upstate New York. Those are my Indians. So I'm so, you know, so thrilled to see that conversation brought to life and, and them brought to life. I mean, there are just things in that museum that I think are really terrific. I think it's political, and I love that it's political, and I, some of those artifacts, you know, are just things that I, I never saw before or understood before, and it's wonderful. If someone wants to grow up to be an archaeologist, what should they do? Dig in the sandbox. Uh, which is my, you know, people tell me they wanted to be an, you know, people always times say, you know, oh, I wanted to be an archaeologist, but I wasn't. I became a real grown-up, you know, and I'm in town. Uh, I just always loved being outside. You have to love being physical, being dirty, being out of doors, uh, be interested in culture, different, different, you know, there a lot of things you have to be, you shouldn't be it if you're not interested in all those things. I started out, I have degrees in anthropology, so I, it's just that I, 
archaeology of all the fields of anthropology. You know, there are four, physical, social, archaeology, and linguistics. Of all of them, archaeology just was most, I guess, challenging to me, most, most, you know, interesting. Are there a lot of days where you work and work and work and have nothing to show for it? Yep. Uh, well, you have your aching muscles to show for it. You have a day of physical labor that is, you know, rewarding in the sense that you work hard and that's okay. And it's a process. Every day there's the promise of finding something and, and uh, you accept the days that you don't find anything. Have you worked on other projects since, since this one? Since, no. Since the no. And I imagine this is my last big project. I mean, and how lucky to have gotten such a wonderful project at the end of my career. Well, we are out of time. We've been speaking with Rebecca Yeaman. She is the author of this book, Archaeology at the Site of the Museum of the American Revolution, A Tale of Two Taverns and the Growth of Philadelphia. Thank you very much. Well, thank you so much. It's a pleasure. You've been listening to a podcast of PA Books, a production of PCN, the Pennsylvania Cable Network. Full episodes of PA Books, as well as other PCN programs, are available to stream with the PCN app. Visit PCNTV.com or the App Store for details. Like us on Facebook.